In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have a chapter that most people recognize as being a chapter on the resurrection. There's 58 verses in this chapter, and uh, it all relates one way or the other, with the great majority of them dealing specifically with the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of the body. But the apostle, in the beginning of this chapter, refers to a number of people uh, that were seen of Christ after his resurrection. That would be a 40-day period of time between his resurrection and his ascension back to heaven. And uh, he includes himself in this list as being the last. But I want to take a look at that list just briefly this morning, leading into the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul says, first of all, he was seen of Cephas. Of course, that's Peter. And then he was seen of the apostles, or the twelve. Then he was seen above 500 brethren at one time, of which many are present, but some have fallen asleep, which means some of the ones that he showed himself to have already passed away. Then he says he was seen of James and then all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me as one born out of due time. That's an interesting expression, isn't it? Seen of me as one born out of due time. Uh, Paul was not among the original 12 apostles. He came, of course, later on. We're going to take a look at his experience, if the Lord bless us this morning, that's found in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. But he says, and last of all, and I think we find this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul was caught up to the third heaven. And there he saw things that was not lawful for man to utter. I believe he saw the resurrected Christ in that experience where he was caught up into this place, again called the third heaven. So he says, last of all, there's seen of me as one born out of due time. And he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he says, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Now Paul makes a statement here that by the grace of God, he was what he was. He says, I persecuted the church of God, yet by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, I think we can all say that this morning, each and every single one of us. It's by the grace of God that we are what we are. Or I can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. There's nothing more, nothing less. It's grace all the way through. And I was thinking about that expression, by the grace of God, I am what I am. How was it that the Lord told Moses to tell the children of Israel that he had sent him? By what name, he says, by the name I am, capital I, capital A-M. So by the great I am and his grace, we are what we are. We can say by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, the Apostle Paul is first brought to our attention as Saul of, of Tarsus. If you go back, we spoke last week on the life of Stephen and how Stephen was stoned to death and how he looked up and he saw, looked right into heaven and saw the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ standing on the right hand of God. And those that stoned him to death, they're referred to as witnesses. According to Jewish law, they had to be in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word to be established and had to have that many or more to actually stone someone. So these witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's foot, feet whose name was Saul. That's how he's introduced to us. And then it's several verses before we read anything else about him. They laid their clothes down at a young man's feet. We don't know how young Saul was. We don't know his age. But we know later on when his name is Paul, they refer to as Paul the aged. So he went from being a young man to an aged man. 
I kind of like that expression, aged man rather than old man anyway, don't you? I like that better. You see, there's one thing about it. Every single one of us are not as young as we used to be. I don't care what, how old you are this morning. There's not a single person here this morning is as young as you used to be. And every single one of us here this morning are getting older every day. And that's true, no matter what age you are, we're all getting older. So when somebody says, well, you know, you're, you're just getting older, well, I say, well, I'm thankful for that, aren't you? We're all getting older every single day, no matter what your age is. Now, Paul went from a, a young man to an aging man, and it's what happened in between that should be of great interest to us for lots of different reasons. Now, when I take a look at this man, he was Saul of Tarsus. Uh, there's a number of things that we need to take a look at to see a sketch of this man's life. All right, if you uh, study Acts 22, Acts 26, Acts 8 and 9, Philippians chapter 3, for example, it's all going to give us some words or descriptive words of the life of this man uh, from his days as Saul to his days as Paul. Now, when we look again there in Acts 7, it says they laid their clothes down. The witness did a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Then it gives us more details about the death of Stephen. And then chapter 8 starts out and it says, And Saul consented to the death of Stephen. The word consent means approval. Now I want you to think about the man we're going to talk about just a little bit this morning. He gave his approval to those who stoned this wonderful martyr, Stephen, to death. And he never forgot that. He'll make mention of this over in Acts chapter 26. Stephen was a martyr. He was stoned to death. And Saul of Tarsus gave his approval of it, gave his consent to it. And then we find in verse 3 where it says that Saul breathed out slaughterings and threatenings against the Lord's people. When you take a look at some of the words associated with Paul's actions against the Lord's children, the Lord's disciples, Christians, if you please, those who made up the early church that, uh, you know, in the, in the days of the Acts, it's, uh, it's a long list of some very, very strong language, strong words describing his actions uh, toward the Lord's children, toward the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it goes into some other things. And then we come to chapter 9, open up chapter 9. And we find where we're told that as Paul breathed out threatenings and slaughterings against the Lord's people, he made havoc of them and also would hail them, H-A-L-I-N-G, hailing them, which means to draw or to drag. Uh, and said he went into every house, uh, hailing them, dragging them into prison. He persecuted them. In other words, Saul was the chief person behind the persecution of the Lord's church in the early days. Now, it's kind of hard for us to relate to that because none of us ever experienced anything like this, but I'm telling you the experience was real. And these are members of our, our family. We're going to be in heaven. These people, under consideration, I've just been talking to you, who suffered at the hands of Saul of, of, of Tarsus, who were persecuted, who were beaten, who were dragged, and some were put to death, and Paul gave approval and consented to it as Saul of Kish. Excuse me, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Kish is in the Old Testament. Over in the book of Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells the Philippians that we should have no confidence in the flesh. He says, we are the circumcision, the true circumcision, that is circumcision of the heart. We are the true circumcision of the heart. He says, we worship God the Father in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Notice that, no confidence in the flesh. 
What is it about your flesh that you got confidence in? What's in your flesh that is in your human nature that you should have confidence in? It's nothing. Not anything in your human nature you should have confidence in. He said, now, whereof uh, if any man should have confidence, I so much the more. He says, if you want to talk about somebody who might have reason to have confidence in the flesh, uh, I would be one of those people. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. That was required. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. He says, I'm a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Notice his list here is very impressive. Not just a Hebrew, but a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I mean, he could trace his lineage. It's through the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the two favorite sons of Jacob. There was Benjamin, there was Joseph, who were born of his favorite wife, Rachel. And Benjamin was very loyal unto David at the time of the uprising of Absalom. So they were very familiar with the tribe of Benjamin. And he's proven by this that he did not come through Ishmael, did not come through... Um, uh, you know, uh, he came definitely uh, from, from Jacob uh, through Benjamin, etc. Not of Esau, not of um, uh, Ishmael. He was a Jew, pure Jew in every sense of the word. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. He was a Pharisee. He was a son of a Pharisee. Touching the law, he was blameless. The righteousness of the law, he said he was blameless. Concerning the church, persecute, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul never did try to hide his past. It was out there. It was, you know, everyone knew about his past. He never tried to hide it. He brought it forth very clear. But I want us to think of that expression again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When Paul said, he, even though he persecuted the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, I'm not worthy, or he says, uh, I'm, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, even to be among the least of the apostles. Paul had great humility uh, about himself. And so he gives this list of things over here in the book of Philippians chapter 3, that if anybody was going to have confidence in the flesh, he'd certainly be one of them. I mean, his pedigree and his, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, everything he had was outstanding. It was extremely impressive. He was a rising star among the Jewish people. He was a rising star among the Pharisees. Sometimes you read about somebody in politics and he's so-and-so is a rising star among the Republicans or she's a rising star among the Democrats or whatever. Uh, people are taking special notice of them for different reasons. Well, that was the case with Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus. You come over to the 22nd chapter of Acts, you'll find that he was born in Tarsus of a place called Cilicia. This was a, a country in Southeast Asia, and Tarsus was the main city of the capital of it. He says, I'm a citizen of Tarsus, which is of no mean city. That's an interesting word, M-E-A-N. But it means this city was well known. This city was famous. It wasn't a, a city uh, that people weren't aware of. People were aware of this city, and that's where he was born, and he grew up for a while there, but mainly he was brought up, though, in Jerusalem. He was a Roman citizen. He was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel is the most famous doctor of the law that you'll find in the Bible or in Jewish history. He was well-known, well-thought-of, highly esteemed, highly respected, and to be brought up at his feet would be an honor. And Saul was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, being taught the perfect man of the law according to his fathers. Paul was a very educated individual. 
brilliant man. In the 26th chapter of Acts, you'll find where Festus said, Paul, thou art mad. Much learning hath made thee mad. Now, he wasn't talking about being angry. He was talking about being out of his mind, so to speak. He says, what's caused that? You've had too much learning. That statement, along with the fact he's brought up at the feet of Gamal, tells me that he was a very brilliant man, highly educated man, yet we find in the scriptures where uh, he wasn't the, the best speaker in the world. But he says his letters are very weighty, but his speech is contemptible. That's another little, little part of Paul. So we see he was well qualified, to say the least, in every sense of the word. Uh, he was a rising star among the Pharisees, among the Jewish people, with a tremendous bright future that lay ahead of him if he had pursued this course of action. Now we find that Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, about verse 12, he said, I thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who enabled me, who counted me faithful, who put me into the ministry. All right, notice what he's saying. He said, I'm in the ministry because he put me in there and he enabled me. He said, but I obtained mercy. He makes mention about how he was a, a persecutor. Well, there's three things he mentions right here. He says he was a blasphemer, which means he denied the deity to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was the main force among those, again, that were taken out and put in prison and beaten and some lost their lives. Uh, they were brutally treated, and he was the main force behind it. And he says he was injurious. And the word injurious means that he, uh, his words were uh, against them in great verbal abuse. In other words, he attacked the Lord's people with his words and also with his deeds and with his actions. I want you to get a, a picture of this man, a profile of this man, a sketch of this man and this man's life. Because... When you see and understand this, and we study him in Acts chapter 9, you're going to understand why he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Okay? He doesn't seem like a likely candidate to be a great champion of the cause, does he? Of all people, at this particular time in his life, of all people, he'd been the very last person, the very last man that you thought would have been a great champion of Christianity. That's exactly what he became. But you'd have thought he'd been the last, Right? Well, let's go to Acts chapter 9 just for a moment here. In Acts chapter 9, you'll find where it opens up where he's breathing out threatenings and slaughterings against the Lord's people. We've already been told he consented to their death. We've already been told that uh, he would go from house to house and drag them out and take and put them into prison. And now he's got his sight set on a town called Damascus. Damascus is about 160 miles away from Jerusalem. Now, when you think about 160 miles a day, you don't think about that being too far of a distance, right? You get in your car, in about two and a half hours, you can be there. Uh, some people make it in two. Uh, but anyway, you can be there, you know, in a pretty short period of time, right? But they didn't have cars back then. 160 miles in that day is a lot longer than 160 miles today. And Saul of, of Tarsus is heading in that direction. And he's got letters of authority from the chief priests and scribes there in Jerusalem to go to Damascus to arrest God's people there, do the same thing to them there he's been doing to them in Jerusalem. And he's on his way. You know, I used Siri this morning to start with. I said, how far is it from Jerusalem to Damascus? I just asked Siri. She said, well, by car, we're not sure, but way the, way the crow flies, 130 miles. Then I did a little more, more research, found it to be 160 but even Syria was close. She can give you a lot of good information. But anyway, 
Alexa's not as reliable. But anyhow, uh, 160 miles, and they're traveling by, basically by foot. It's going to take them a long time to get there. You can see how strong a zeal this man had to persecute God's children. And he says, it says when he got nigh to Damascus, he's not quite there, but he's close to Damascus. And it's about noonday. If you read Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26, you'll find the experience of Paul here is recorded in all three places. And you put them together uh, to get all your information. But you're going to find at noontime a, sh a light shine brighter than the noonday sun. Now that's pretty bright, isn't it? The noonday sun is extremely bright, but it was brighter than the noonday sun. And he said he fell to the earth. This indeed was an earth-shattering experience for him. He fell to the earth and he cried out and said, Lord, who art thou? He recognized a, a, a great power had brought him down. He said, Lord, who art thou? And the Lord Jesus Christ responded and saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Whenever it's here, he called him Saul, Saul. He knew all about Saul, even though Saul knew nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ at this point. Now, Saul had religion. He was a very religious man. He was a brilliant man. He'd been brought up under, again, the teachings of Gamaliel concerning the law of Moses, etc. He had all that. And he had great zeal. He thought he was doing the right thing, actually, but his eyes was blinded. You go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I, uh, he said, I obtained mercy because I did this ignorantly. He says, but the Lord had mercy upon him. He goes on to describe the act of God upon him as exceeding uh, abundantly in his grace. Mercy and grace entered into the life of Saul of Tarsus, just like it did your life and like it did my life. The Lord gave Saul mercy, and giving him mercy, he did not give Saul what he deserved. But he also gave him grace. He gave him what he didn't deserve. And that's true with me, and that's true with you, is it not? That's what mercy is all about. If God didn't have mercy upon us, and we got exactly, totally, 100% what we deserve, none of us would be here today. We'd all be perished. Now God chastises people, don't misunderstand but he exercises mercy in it. And then the grace of God. God, that's what God gives us that we do not deserve. We don't deserve the grace of God. And we deserve more than what God does to us in terms of his chastisement, but he tempers it with his mercy. And Paul brings that to our attention about the mercy. That I did it ignorantly, he says, and therefore I obtained mercy. Now, if you go back and study the Old Testament, you'll find the book of Leviticus chapter 5, where somebody sinned ignorantly, they, would have, they didn't just get swept under the rug. If they, if they sinned ignorantly, they were to bring a ram without blemish of the flock to the priest and offer a trespass offering. And he would make that offering to God and his sin would be forgiven him. And then you go to the 15th chapter of Numbers, you'll find when the congregation as a whole did this, that they sinned ignorantly. You're going to find where they had to do the same thing. They had to take a, a ram and bring it forth for a burnt offering, a trespass offering against God. And the priest would take it and make the offering to God and they'd receive forgiveness. It wasn't just swept under the rug. Paul says they did it ignorantly. He said, but I obtained mercy as a result of that. And his grace, he says, was exceeding 
Powerful. You know, Paul used that word exceeding a number of times, like Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. Ephesians 1.19. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? That word exceeding there uh, is one of Paul's favorite words in describing the acts of God and the grace of God. Again, the grace that he... In other words, here's what I think Paul is saying right there. When he speaks about God's grace being exceeding, I think he's just really saying, it took a lot of grace to save me. <laughs> it took a great amount of grace to save me. But let me tell you here this morning, it takes no more, no more less grace to save me than it does you, and no more, no more less grace to save you than it does me. You understand what I'm saying there? And no sinner's ever been saved apart from grace. God's Delivers his people is by his grace. And we're all sinners by nature. We're in the same pool. We're all out of multiplied. And outside the grace of God, that's where we would stay, my friends. And we would justly receive the condemnation of God. But Paul's life, in fact, I hope you're already getting a picture of his life in his earlier days of Saul uh, of Tarsus. You're not going to find a, a greater enemy the church has ever had in its history than this man here. That's why Paul can make statements like this. Let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He said, This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now just above that, he told you what he once was. He says, I was a persecutor, I was a blasphemer, and I was injurious to the church. That's what I was. But in our text, he said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. But we look back here about the chief of sinners and notice what he says. That Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Not was chief, I still am chief of sinner. He still saw himself by nature. He saw his weakness, he saw his poverty by nature, and he considered himself still to be the chief of sinners. In our text in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that I am the least of all the apostles, not, not meet to be called an apostle, which means he's not worthy to be called an apostle. He considers himself to be the least of all the apostles, but if you study all the lives of the apostles, I think it, it'd be a consensus that the apostle Paul accomplished more and did more than anybody else. But Paul considers himself to be the least of all the apostles. And he says, in the grace of God, which I, you know, I labored more abundantly than y'all, but yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Ephesians 3.8, he says, unto me who am less than the least of all the saints is this grace given. Now, if you're the less than the least, that makes you the least, isn't it? Here's the least, and you're less than the least, that makes you the least. Paul, when he took a look at his life, felt like he was the least of all the saints. When he took a look at his life, he felt like he was not worthy to be numbered among the apostles. When he took a look at his life, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. Paul had great humility about him. Great humility. He's on that Damascus road. And just before he gets to Damascus, where he has full intentions of persecuting God's people, just as soon as he gets there... He is struck down to the earth by a light that comes down from heaven brighter than the noonday sun about the middle of the day. And a voice comes out of heaven. You know, I was, I was reading something that a man wrote on this. 
And he says, well, we don't all have the Apostle Paul's experience. Uh, we not, haven't all seen a light bright in the noonday sun, and we haven't all heard the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. I said, I think we have. According to John 5, 25, the Lord Jesus Christ said, we have. He said, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, the hour is coming now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and that it here shall live. Every born again child of God is born to him because he hears the voice of the Son of God. And that's what gives him life. I don't know how you miss something like that. <laughs> this is supposed to be a pretty well recognized man. I don't know how you miss something like that. Do you? If you don't hear the voice of the Son of God, you're never going to be born again. I tell you that. But every child of grace, every elect, every child of promise, every object of God's love, every covenant child, sometime between their conception and their death, will hear the voice of the Son of God. And that voice says, live. And life is imparted and put into the heart and soul of that individual. It's, it's not a, uh, you know, uh, uh, something less than 100% success rate. It's 100% success rate. Somebody said, Brother Lawrence, uh, it, it sounds like when you preach on, on the doctrine of election, you preach on the, the doctrine of God's sovereign grace, and you preach on the doctrine of regeneration and, and everything, it just sounds like you uh, uh, save a sinner whether he wants to be saved or not. Let me ask you the question. Have you ever found a sinner that felt like he was saved getting mad at God about it? That'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Here's somebody in there. They, you know, they show all the evidences of being born in the Spirit of God, and they're just angry with God because he born them with the Spirit of God. That, uh, <laughs> that's over on the list of nonsense. Right at the top of it. To always remember this. Man in his nature does not have a spiritual will. He only has a natural will. He only has a spiritual will after he's been born of the Spirit of God. Before that, it's a will not. Jesus said in John chapter 5, Ye will not come unto me. It's not a, a will to, it's a will not. He will not. He received not. It's after you've been born of the Spirit. Now let's take a look at his life over here. Here's a man who heard a great defense of truth in Acts chapter 7, but Stephen didn't move him one iota. Didn't move him one bit, did it? He just made, he gave consent to his death. And then immediately after that, we read where he's breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the Lord's church and persecuting it. Didn't move him one bit. Why? Because he didn't have a heart to receive it. But in Acts chapter 9, you're going to find where the Lord deals with him. We're going to change his life. Lord, what would thou have me to do? At this point, he's born of the Spirit. He says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He says, arise and go into Damascus, and there thou will be one who shall tell thee what thou ought to do. And from that point forward, Saul's eyes was closed. He was blind. He couldn't see a thing. When you read the other accounts of this experience of the Apostle Paul, you'll find that those who were traveling with Paul, they heard a voice, they saw the light, but they didn't hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He heard it. He's the only one the Lord spoke to. And they took him by the hand. They took him down to Damascus. When he got down there, the Lord had been working on the other end of the line. That's what I just love about the book of Acts. I love God working on both ends of the line. 
both, working on both ends of the line. There's a man down there in Damascus. His name is Ananias. It's the only time in the Bible you're going to read about him. And I've said this many times. And the Lord said, uh, okay, I'm going to let you choose the person that's going to preach to this fire-breathing dragon who you want to choose. I said, well, let's try John. Boy, he'll love him to death. You know, he's so kind and gentle and everything and so loving. No, not John. Uh, what about Peter? Boy, he's a bold fisherman. If anybody's uh, suited and qualified to meet this man head on, it'd be the Apostle Peter, right? No, we're not going to choose Peter. He, and he says, but what about Ananias? I says, Ananias? Who is he? <laughs> he's a preacher of the gospel in Damascus. That's who he is. And the Lord is going to talk to Ananias. He's going to tell Ananias about Saul coming there and where he's going to be. He says, you go to see him. And I said, Lord, he says, I've heard a lot about this man. Now listen, they're 160 miles apart, okay? No television, no radio, no internet. How in the world do they hear a report 160 miles away? Well, news did travel even back in that day. And especially news like this. We've heard a lot about this man. How down at Jerusalem... He's been persecuting the Lord's church, he's, and he's on his way here right now, here with letters of authority. He already knew all that. Do the same thing in Damascus. He's doing there, but it's what the Lord told him. He said, Behold, he prayeth, and he's a chosen vessel unto me. And based on them two things right there, Ananias went to where the Lord told him to go. When he went into the house, he says, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, that's all he needed to know. When the Lord told him it was a praying man. Well, who is a praying man? A praying man is somebody who's been born of the Spirit of God and they want to communicate with Jesus. They want to communicate with God. They want to speak to the Lord. Do you like to do that? Do you like to pray? Do you like to communicate with heaven? Do you like to communicate with the God of heaven, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? I hope that you do. I tell you what, I, I love to talk to the Lord. He'll just listen to me and, and uh, I already knows every, he knows everything I'm telling him. You know, I'm not informed about anything. But I like to just uh, release my feelings and my thoughts and my emotions and pour it out to him. That's why you find in the Old Testament where it said that Solomon, that they spread their hands toward heaven. That just means they were just pouring everything out to the God of glory. He's a praying man. Find me a praying man. I'll tell you, I'll, you'll show me a man that I won't be afraid of. In my early days in the ministry, goes back just a few years. But anyway, I remember going to the hospital. Uh, this lady's mother was in the hospital. She'd been a heavy drinker. And now she was just moments away from death. Her liver is gone. And before I went in, she says, I, please, I just want to ask you, when you go in, I want you to talk to her. And I want you to do all you can to try to, try to save her. Find out if you think she's saved. <laughs> so I'll talk to you later. <laughs> and I, I went in and visited with her. Had a wonderful visit. And she said, Brother Lawrence, she says, will you pray for me? I said, I'd be happy to. And I tried to do the very best I could. I bowed down and tried to pour out my heart on her behalf and prayed for her. And I went back out. I said, let me just tell you a little something here. In the book of Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul says, many are led by the Spirit of God. They are the sons of God. And a person is not going to want to have prayer and pray unless they've been led by the Spirit of God. And if that's the case, led by the Spirit of God, they are born again and heaven bound. 
believe he gave that little woman a little bit of comfort there and a little peace. Oh, how the truth should make you free, brethren, to know these things. Listen, if you enjoy reading the scripture, if you pray to God, if you enjoy talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, if you enjoy coming to the house of God and hearing the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you desire to walk in the footsteps of our Savior, I'm going to tell you that's all made possible because the grace of God quickened you somewhere in the past and made you alive in Jesus. Oh, how I'd love to get the Lord's people just to understand that concept. Paul gets down there and Ananias says, Brother Saul. That's what, that's what the grace of God brings us, uh, uh, what the grace of God does to us, isn't it? Uh, I'm your brother and you're my brother and sister in Christ. <laughs> I left to strike hands with the brother in sweet fellowship. I left uh, when things are normal. Uh, I'm a hugger myself, you know that. I like to shake hands, I like to hug necks, I like to uh, feel the, the emotion, the passion, my friends, of, of the love of God that's in the hearts of God's people. Hmm. Let me see. <laughs> so he comes there, he says, Brother Saul, he says, the God of our fathers has sent me to tell you <laughs> something. He says, send me to tell you, you're a chosen vessel and ye shall appear before kings and before the Gentiles and I must show you great things you must suffer for my name's sake. Well, what about that last little expression? I'm going to show you what things you must suffer for my name's sake. You know, the life of Paul was outlined to him from this very moment. You go read Acts 22 and 26 for additional information. But the Lord is telling Paul ahead of time, before he even starts his ministry right here, you're going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. You're going to appear before kings. It says, yes, you'll preach some to the Jews, but you'll be an apostle to the Gentiles, and you must suffer great things for my name's sake. Well, I'm sure when he says you're going to appear before kings, Paul might have thought, well, that's great. But what about this thing about suffering great things for your name's sake? I'm not sure about that. Well, did he? Let me tell you about his first experience when he's there in Damascus. He goes to Damascus and he preached Jesus Christ, proving immediately after this experience, he preached Christ. Immediately. And he proved to the Jews that Jesus was the very Christ. And the Jews got so upset at him that there was a garrison there in the city and they were instructed to kill him. And the disciples found out about it. And they put him in a basket. Large enough for a man to be put in. And they led him down over the wall with a rope where he escaped. And I thought, my, what a way, what an experience to have on your first preaching trip. <laughs> and I thought about some of my first preaching trips. <laughs> I thought, man, if I, if I had that kind of experience in my first preaching trip, I'd have been out of here. <laughs> Imagine, preach Jesus Christ. Next thing you know, people say, we're going to kill you for that message. At least when I leave here, you seem like you enjoy it. You smile at me anyway and pat me on the back, whatever. You know, I hadn't had anybody threaten me yet here. But they threatened him, going to take his life. What in the world if my first preaching trip away from home had been like that? 
What I'd come back and Karen said, well, how'd the trip go? I said, you ain't going to believe this, but I got out of there by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> You're going back. Are you kidding? No, I'm not. But the Apostle Paul did. That's why he would tell Timothy, I'm willing to spend and be spent for the cause of Christ. He told the disciples, his friends, in Acts chapter 20, he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be bound and even lay down his life for the gospel's sake. You go over and read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and read the things that Paul lists that he experienced as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, three times I suffered shipwreck. He says, I was stoned. I was beaten with rods on three occasions. Remember you read in Acts where he was stoned and they left him what they thought was dead, but he wasn't. And of the three shipwrecks he talks about, we have one recording in Acts chapter 27. It was a humdinger. And then you got eight perils he lists right here. He said, I was in perils of robbers. I was in peril of my own countrymen. I was in peril by false brethren. I was in perils in the water, perils in the city, perils in the, in the wilderness. Wherever he went, uh, the, the very threat of death was all around him. And here's all the things without. He says, and then there was times I was hungry, times I was thirsty, there was times that I, I fasted. Uh, he says, in weariness, in painfulness. He said, there were times I had great pain. There was time when I was greatly wearied. And I was hungry and thirsty and fasting and all these things. And he says, and then last of all, now here's what's within. Everything I've been talking to you has been on the outside. Okay, the outward, the physical. He says, and last of all, the care of all the churches. That always seems strange to me. That'd be listed here in all these afflictions he went through. The care of all the churches. And right now, I just have the care of one church. <laughs> I understand a little bit about that. But what if he was the Apostle Paul? Paul, you might say, was the, uh, <laughs> he was the pastor of all those churches in a sense. That he helped constitute and organize and went back and preached too. He loved the, the church at Corinth, the church at Rome, the church at Philippi and Galatia and uh, Thessalonica and all these churches. He said, I had the care of all the churches. He carried them right inside his soul, right inside of his heart. Some of the things Paul went through. But I'm going to go back over here to the third chapter of the book of Philippians just for a moment. Where I was at a while ago when he was given his long list, his pedigree, you might say, um, or his resume uh, as what he was. And then he says, but I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. He said, I count all these things but dung. Dung is just waste, okay? That's what I'll say about it. It's just waste. That's what, that's what he put it on. All these things, the promise that he had. I'm telling you, he was a, the most promising person among the Jews in his day. He says, I lost it all. Gave it all up for him. For him. And Brother David Neighbor sent me a little thing the other day I really liked. It's something along the lines, when I think I'm having a real bad day, I take a look at this, and here, here was a picture of two men, and one of them was Jesus. It looked like you can just imagine out his beating and everything on the cross sitting beside him. Help put things in perspective, doesn't it? 
I count all these things but loss, that I might win Christ. That's just an expression of fellowship. He said, I might know him and the power of his resurrection and being conformable under his death and the fellowship of his sufferings. He says, there's fellowship even sufferings for Christ. He said, I lost, I count all these things but dung that I might win Christ. Oh, that's, that was a lot to, to give away, to give up from the natural perspective, from the natural human aspect of all these things. And there are people who just thrive on power and authority. And they covet it and they thrive for it. They, eat, they, they just thirst for it on a regular basis. Thank God. Hopefully that's not my desire and my feelings. And I hope it's not yours as well. The Bible says, better is a little that a righteous man hath than an abundance that the wicked possesses. You understand where your blessings come from. I like to begin to bring these remarks to a close in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. But before I, but before I do that, let me go back to Acts chapter 9 just for a moment. What, what was involved in Saul's experience in Acts chapter 9 apart from the grace of God? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. You don't find him stopping and calling upon the Lord. He had no desire to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was God and his amazing, miraculous grace that brought him down to the very dust of the earth. Then it helped him to understand he was the chief of sinners. It, you know, I can preach to you about sin. I can preach to you about what it is to be, uh, be a sinner. I can tell you what the Bible says about sin. All these things, brother. But until the Lord Jesus Christ takes up his abode in your heart, it's not going to mean anything to you. It's then and only then that you see yourself to be a poor, undone, unworthy, corrupt, vile, bankrupt sinner. And that's when you really appreciate God's wonderful grace, isn't it? Oh, I tell you. Uh, you know, Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. There's a lot of thoughts about what the mother's womb represents there. I think it just means the mother's womb. Providentially speaking, providentially in God's work of creation, he created mankind where he could multiply or be fruitful and replenish this earth. Uh, it's God who gives life and it's God who brings us forth out of the womb, my friends, through his providential care. And uh, God set all that up from the very beginning. Do you know that? From the very beginning of time, God established that, created that, put that in the way that mankind would come into this world. When God who separated my mother's womb, called me by his grace. He said, I immediately conferred not with flesh and blood, but when immediately to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul said, I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. We'll look at the words of Paul in his last days on this earth. I'm ready now to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. He said, I fought a good fight. I kept the faith. And I finished my course. Henceforth there is laid for me a crown of righteousness. A crown of not of gold, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord shall give me that day, and not me only, but all those that love his appearing. That promise is unto each and several, every one of you. Every one of you. You keep reading a little bit, he's going to tell Timothy to do something for him. 
He says, Luke is with me. He says, uh, and you bring, uh, bring Mark with you for he's profitable unto the ministry. There's a time when Paul didn't think that, but he does now. Bring Mark with you. And my cloak, which I left at Troas, I want you to bring. It's wintertime. I'm going to be cold. I want you to bring my cloak. And I want you to bring the books. I want you to bring especially the parchments. Now, what does that sound like to you? Does that sound like a man ready to retire? Does that sound like a man who's getting ready to sit back and say, well, I don't have much time left. I'm just going to take it easy till, the, till I get to the finish line. Doesn't sound like that to me. Paul knows he's only got a short time, but when that short time he's got, he still wants his books. He still wants his parchments. He still wants to write. He's still concerned about getting cold, wants that cloak, you know. <laughs> Every once in a while, somebody said, Brother Lawrence, uh, are, are you about ready to retire? Retire? <laughs> Anybody knows anything about the old Baptist? Anybody knows anything about printed Baptist preachers? No, there's no such thing as retirement. That is from preaching. Now, yes, there are times men need to step aside from pastoring. That's for sure. When the mind and body is not able physically and mentally to take care of the task, they need to step aside. But I'm trying to desire to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's still just as strong in the heart, my friends, of a 95-year-old man as it was when he was 35. So as long as I can walk and talk, you're going to have to put up with me. <laughs> well, somebody will have to. May not be you. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Is it any other way? Can it be any other way? Has it ever been any other way? No, no, and no. Will it ever be another way? No. It's grace and grace alone. I, I, I love that title of the uh, Grace Alone broadcast. <laughs> grace Alone. And when you hear the broadcast every day, which I trust that you do, if you get up early enough, you can hear me at 6 o'clock. Um, but you might want to get up that early. But anyway, uh, usually at 6 o'clock. Grace alone means exactly what it says. Grace alone. No ifs, no ands, and no buts. It's of the Lord from beginning to end, first to last. All Him, not a combination. When you come to realize that in your experience, I'm telling you, you should be on shouting ground. You should be on shouting ground walking down Hallelujah Boulevard. Right? That's where, that's where you want to travel. That's where I want to be. Walking down Hallelujah Boulevard, shouting praises to the Lord because I know it's all of Him. It's all of grace.